and you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Sharon Gless, who is starring in a production called A Round-Heeled Woman by Jane Prowse at Z-Space at Theater Artoth in San Francisco. Through February 7th, Sharon Gless was starring in Cagney and Lacey as Christine Cagney. Queer as Folk is Debbie Novotny, Burn Notice, Nip Tuck, Independent Films, BBC miniseries, The State Within. Sharon Gless grew up in Hollywood. Her grandfather was an attorney for the studios. And apparently Sharon Gless was the last contract player in the history of Hollywood with Universal, which we'll go into a little later. But let's start first by talking about your work in this play, A Round-Heeled Woman. Apparently, there was a, an article in the New York Times about a memoir called A Round-Heeled Woman by Jane Juska, and your husband, who's a producer, threw the New York Times down and said, if you have any balls, you'll get a hold of this play. Is that pretty much it? <laughs> well, his exact quote is, if you had any balls, you'd go after this. And I was so angry at him that I did. I called my lawyer, and it took me a year to get it. But I initially made that call the next morning just because I was so mad at him and daring me. Well, she, in the play, is 66. Was she actually that old in the book? Exactly. When she took out the ad... She was 66, about to be 67. So this is kind of serendipitous that you happen to be the same age at this point. Well, it's so interesting. I was telling Jane Prowse, who wrote the the adaptation and made it into a play, I've had this project for almost 10 years now. Could not sell it in America. It just was a little too daring. And I had to go to London to a West End producer to do it. It's been a long, long, long time, and I am now 66, about to be 67. I'm exactly the same age Jane was when this happened to her. Had you thought about making it a film rather than a play? or We thought of a film. We thought uh, even more specifically a series, because that's really my arena. That's what I do. And couldn't sell it, not even to cable. And it's, it's fascinating. Women my age in America, no one is interested, they say, in uh, hearing about a woman that age and her sexual experiences. You go to London and they have Judy Dench, Joan Plowright, Helen Mirren, Maggie Smith, Julie Walters, these amazing, very sexy women who they do, I don't mean exploit, but they do use in a very sexual way in film. The truth is, those women know a lot more about sex than the 20-year-olds. You know, they know what they're doing, and they're very sensuous. Anyway, a West End producer said, I will do it. But it's very American, Sharon. So before I put it in the West End, I want to try it out in the United States. We're taking our shot in San Francisco, because we think you're a pretty cool town. Chris Smith, the director, was with The Magic, so I assume this was originally going to be going to The Magic, but now it's independent. He was approached while he was at The Magic, but he was leaving The Magic. I guess after he was able to sever himself from The Magic, he then took it on for us. Well, Sharon Glass, how is developing a character in a play different from, say, a TV series or a film? 
in this particular case, I own the option on this, so I guess you'd call me a producer in name only because I'm I'm, I'm with the best producers there are. Uh, in in television, usually I just step into it. All the work's done. I just step in and play the role. This one, I've been much more involved. This is a lot more work. Theater's a lot more daunting to me. I mean, I'm doing my 10th series now. Someone Googled me the other day saying that I have done more TV series than anyone in the television academy now. <laughs> so television is my home, and I know what I'm doing in that arena. This is a little frightening for me, and also because I am playing a real woman who's going to be there opening night. When you say that you're playing a real woman, in terms of that, how much of your knowledge of Jane do you take with you into, say, creating a physical life of a character? As I've told Jane, I don't look anything like Jane, and I don't sound anything like her. Jane and I communicate occasionally, not, not often. But I said, Jane, I'm not going to be mimicking you or imitating you. I'm not that good. But I will be using her words. When Jane Prowse adapted the book into a... Um, uh, stage play, she lifted a lot of Jane Jiska's words right out of the book. So I am going to be saying a lot of Jane's words, but I'll be saying them in my way. So you you kind of put her aside in that in that respect. Well, only the physicality of her. Right. Uh, certainly not emotionally. No, I have not put her aside emotionally <laughs> at all. The first time you walked into say playing Christine Cagney right. or Debbie Novotny, right. right. Yeah, you're not the producer, you're just stepping into the part, but on the other hand, you have an idea of who the character is, right? Yes. Yes, before I agree to play a role, yes, I do do an inner investigation of the character, or, or if it's something I feel I can do, right. and do justice to. Now, as opposed to playing Jane, I feel a great responsibility to do her justice. And it's not all flattering. She's she, she's seen the script. She knows she's heard the read through. I mean, which is taken out of her book. But she's extraordinary. She went and did something that was very very brave. Well, what she did was she put an ad into the New York Review of Books and uh, sixty six years old. I want to have sex. Uh, I would like to have a lot of sex with a man I like. And, of course, she wound up having a lot of sex with a lot of men that she right. didn't necessarily like. The second <laughs> half of her ad said, yes, if you if you want to talk first, Trollop works for me. Well, th then uh, you approached Jane Prowse about writing the play, right? My husband and I, we flew to uh, London and met with uh, Jane Prowse. Just gave her the book and said, Jane, are we crazy? But we knew a studio had been fighting me, you know, for this option. So somebody's interested. I said, are we, are we crazy? And Jane said, let me read it. Six months later, she got back to me because she'd gone on her honeymoon and gone around the world. And she wrote me. She wrote me said, Sharon, I'm so sorry. I would got married, went around the world. I have read your book, or Jane's book. And she said, not only must it be done, she said, I must write it. I said, wow, okay. And she took it to Brian Eastman, who's a very big West End producer. He, I did Misery for him in the West End. And Brian said, absolutely, this is a hot one. Okay, let's go. And so I thought, well, we're going to go right into the West End, yay. And he, as I said, said no. Try it in America first. When uh, she actually presented the play to you, when was that? When did you first see the play? Well, we've gone through so many rewrites. I'd say maybe a year later. We saw the first play, and it's been many years, and it's gone through many, many lives and many rewrites. But it's where it, it is now, and where it's supposed to be. The play itself uses 
several theatrical techniques, breaks the fourth wall, this fantasy sequence, this telescoping, this narration. I mean, it uses virtually everything, things going on in her head. In the original play, was that all evident? Oh, yes. This is not a play just about a woman having sex. She also has to face many demons, and these are the things that come up as part of her journey. This just isn't porn. She faces the issues with her son, who she hadn't seen in 16 years. She faces the issues with her father. She's in therapy while she does it, and that's all in the play. But it's this journey that forces her, this journey she chose. To ask for sex with a lot of men, not a lot. She said with what she said with a man I like. Right. Yeah. Uh, as she says in the in the play, she had never expected to be so plural. But in the end, it forced her back to her greatest pain, which was the loss of her son. They separated many years before. How does working on a play that's in the experimental stage here in, in San Francisco mm -hmm. differ, say, from working on a play like Misery, uh, which went to the West End? There's a lot more money in the play in the West End than we have. This is what Brian Eastman calls experimental theater, not commercial theater. He's very, very clear about that. We're doing it with a lot less money and... and using this huge, huge space. We don't have a big fancy theater. We're using this amazing space called Z Space. It's an old deserted warehouse. It's perfect, but it's big. Well, for me, because I've been here on the ground floor for this project, in misery, I just flew to London. They showed me the sets, rotating stages, music originally composed. There was a lot of money behind that production. Well, on, on the other hand, we're also moving, I think, into a phase, from what I've seen, where a lot of shows and plays are being downsized because production costs are so high. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And this I forgot to mention, this play was originally a two-hour, and it was whittled down to a 90-minute which that has nothing to do with money that just is appropriate for this piece without a uh, an intermission yeah. right uh, how do you feel about working without an intermission i love it really why i really love it that well first of all you know I'm, this is a very scary project right. it takes a lot of guts took a lot of guts for jane just to do it and taking a lot of guts for me to do it <laughs> Well, something's this daring. I'm so glad we don't give anybody a chance to get up and leave once they're, once they're hooked. You know, they, like the other night, not one person left. And I think it's appropriate for this piece. I don't get tired. Once I'm on there, I, I can stay for 90 minutes. I never leave the stage. Uh, the other actors, you know, come around me and play sometimes two, three roles. Um, but I'm on there for 90 minutes without stopping. But... When you're doing it, it seems like 10 minutes. You're into it. When you're working it and bringing out the emotions, are you finding places in you, Sharon Gless, where you feel you've never gone before? Yes. That's an interesting question. Because I, I don't have a technique. I have always sort of done this craft I do that I've been lucky enough to be welcomed into, sort of by the seat of my pants. <laughs> and I do it just from here I don't have a lot of training but whatever it is I've been very fortunate to have had a career that's sustained this is a very emotional piece and each night I'm always surprised which piece gets me I don't plan oh good I'll cry on this in this part I don't plan anything I just sort of go with it and I'm always surprised each evening there's certain moments where all of a sudden I'm, I'm taken back by it you know it gets me and other moments where gee 
I planned on that happening later on. It's, it's so it, each night it's kind of a surprise for me as to where I go with it. Well, isn't that to some degree true of all theater? I mean, no performance is ever the same, nor should it be the same. That, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's 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 what they say. <laughs> Every again, it's I still even though I've done I've done like maybe five plays. Yeah. It's still always a new arena for me. I can't yell cut. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I do know how to work with a camera, one one camera. It's always new. It's always fresh. It's frightening. I'm listen, if I told you I wasn't petrified going out there and doing this, I would be lying to you. But it's worth it. And this story is worthy, and I'm very proud to be the one to tell it. Sharon Gless, let's talk a little about the rest of, of your career. Your bio says your grandfather was an attorney in um, in Hollywood. Did you have any connection growing up with Hollywood then? Not directly like he did. He was a really big attorney. He was Cecil B. DeMille's attorney, Louis B. Mayer's, uh, Howard Hughes. I've been to Mr. DeMille's house, you know. Mr. DeMille invited us all to see the Ten Commandments before it came out. But I was a, a little girl, you know, in my white gloves and my Mary Janes. And I met sometimes famous people through him, but just really on the periphery. He told me once when I was in high school, if I lost 25 pounds, he'd take me to lunch with Cary Grant. <laughs> but I did, I, not only did I not lose the 25 pounds, but I just had this image. Well, if I lost it, he'll go to Mr. Grant and he'll say, look, this is my kid, okay? She lost all the weight so she could see you. So, And I... I I was too embarrassed to go through that process. So, But I've heard many, many stories about Howard Hughes because my mother and her siblings knew him because my grandfather was his lawyer, so he was always hanging around the house. Did you see the Scorsese film, The Aviator? That was more about his, his uh, airplane life. My grandfather was very involved in his Hollywood life, in his studio, in movies. There was a movie out many, many years ago called The Carpetbaggers, and it was about Howard Hughes. Well, the lawyer in that was my grandfather, was Neil <laughs> McCarthy. One of the stories I have here is that you said you went from being in the secretary's desk to being in front of a camera. It is true. I was the secretary when they found me. It's not as, it's as Schwab's drugstore story, but it's pretty close. I had decided very late in life, at age 26, that I wanted to be an actress. And I was at this little workshop with some other much younger people than myself. I was like in the teenage class. And one of the kids in the class had written this little play and asked, outside the workshop of, we want to audition to be in it so I auditioned and I got the female lead and it was a very campy melodrama and we didn't charge anyone I only ran two nights you know with folding chairs at the senior center but someone in the audience from Universal Studios was there the second night and he called me up at my office and he said Sharon this is Orrin Borst and I'm in publicity at Universal Studios I saw you in your little play and I said yes I'd worked behind the camera so I knew all the scam and I said yes and he said I'd like you to meet John Cassavetes. You'd be perfect for the lead in his new film. And I want you to meet Monique James, the head of our talent department. Well, everybody knew who Monique James was. Everybody wanted a contract. And she was queen. So I said, okay, cut the bull. Who is this? And he said, I understand you're being skeptical. Why don't I have Miss James call you? I said, yes, do that. But I'd worked so many years behind the camera that I knew every game. And by God, she called me. And I went over and I met her and she asked me if I would prepare a scene for her. I did. I brought it back many months later. She finally called and said, are you ever going to bring that scene in here? And I said, well, yes, Miss James, but I was told that occasionally you remember for good. You never forget when we're bad. She said, just bring it in. So I said, all right. So I brought it in. She signed me that night. You're listening to an interview with Sharon Gless, who's 
starring in A Round-Heeled Woman playing in San Francisco through February 7th. What did they immediately put you in? Anything? Or? I read that night. They asked me to read for uh, Ironside to play the sidekick. And um, he said I was really terrible. The producer, <laughs> and I didn't get that job. But she said, I don't care what he says. He said, we're signing you to a seven-year contract. That's very heady stuff. I think I went home and threw up. I don't remember. It was it was it was very very exciting. And and they so the very first thing I did for them I think was Marcus Welby. It was a big television, the biggest television studio in the world, and all the contract players were put in the TV shows, not in the features. The producers on the lot weren't necessarily interested in having it. They wanted to hire from outside, and they felt contract players were pushed on them. So we didn't always get jobs. We had to read for everything, just like everyone else. But if you're a contract player, you were given the sides the night before. Uh, the sides, like the script, okay. the night before, so it wasn't a cold reading for you. As I went along, they'd build a little reel of the film I was doing. And Miss James would take me into these, in those days, they had big screening rooms, you know, now screens are you know three inches but in, in the days of massive screening rooms just myself and miss james and there'd be a projectionist that i didn't see and she would speak to the projectionist and say please run miss gless's film and that's how i would learn she'd run my film for me and tell me what i was doing wrong what i was doing right and she gave me the greatest lesson ever ever given to me certainly as an actor and she said learn to listen i said i beg your pardon she said you're not listening there you're waiting to say your line i said I know I was frightened. And she said, learn to listen. She said, because if you really, really listen to your partner, they're going to cut to you because your face is going to become so interesting. And that's how I was trained. I was trained as a contract player. So you're basically trained to give good reaction shots. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you very honestly, I consider myself a reactor. I know I'm an actor or an actress, but I really do. I'm, I'm, I'm best at reacting. I, I, I enjoy it. I, I listen and just respond, you know. Sharon Glass, was your first starring gig Cagney and Lacey then? No, I did a series with Robert Wagner and Eddie Albert at Universal called Switch. I did several series. They used to do miniseries, the novels, and I starred in a couple of those. And I played Carol Lombard in one of those. Universal did groom me, and they did it very, very wisely. Minnie James did the whole thing. And she very carefully picked my projects. So by the time the contract system was over, Barney Rosenzweig had been asking for me for a year for Cagney and Lacey because I'd already starred in series. In fact, I fought with them because I wanted to be billed over the title because I'd been billed over the title at my last series. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you were also working with, with a major star, Tyne Daly. Yes, it was a great treat working with Tyne. Tyne had actually never done a television series. Tyne was all theater experience. I had no theater experience, but I had a lot of television experience. So we, we fed each other. You know, we just we complimented each other very, very nicely. Well, there was also the idea of creating uh, somewhere along the line the fact that uh, Christine had this backstory of alcoholism, too. Mm -hmm. You went along with that because it, it kind of changed things. It, 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 it gave depth. Thank you. I will sit here very immodestly. I, I, it's modestly, actually, because I did not write it. I just was lucky enough to play her. I think Christine Cagney was the most complicated, most interesting woman that's ever been written for television. I don't think anyone's ever topped it. I, as, as writers, you know, we have fabulous, wonderful actresses on television now. But I don't think any of them have been given the opportunity to play a role that's as complicated and wonderful as Christine Cagney. Somewhere along the line, uh, Sharon Glass, you became active in abortion rights and in the gay and lesbian community. How did that come about? Well, I've been very active in fighting 
the overturn of Wade versus Roe. And my interest in that happened uh, during my Cagney and Lacey days. I was not a feminist when I signed on for Cagney and Lacey. I didn't know a lot about it. I was raised with boys and, and just always fought for myself. And, and I wasn't aware. I was uneducated as to what was really going on with women outside in my life. And I learned a lot doing Cagney and Lacey. And that got me very hooked into. I'm, I'm very passionate about not letting this be overturned because I have friends I'm old enough to remember people who had to go to Tijuana and who died because they were sick and treated bad you know in coat hangers it's all true all those stories are true uh, when Bush was in office I, I tell you he was trying to get it overturned so anyway but we're fighting we're fighting we're <laughs> <under> fighting <laughs> and, and for the gay movement I um, I did a series called Queer as Folk as I say I learned so much from Katie and Lacey about feminism and I learned so much about uh, the gay community and the, and the <laughs> the fun they have <laughs> and also the fights the fights that they are fighting and I got caught up in it this industry I mean it's done so much for me because uh, the world of academia escaped me but I am very passionate about these things that I've learned as I played these roles. Had you, when you went into Queer as Folk, then your knowledge of the gay and lesbian community was not that strong at that particular time? Well, I wasn't as educated as I am now. I mean, right. the, the old cliche, my best friends were gay, and it's true. I mean, I, I, I moved around in the gay community, and I've played and had fun and, and been a part of it, but that was all laughs. We started doing episodes on queerest folk that educated me and I became very very close to a lot of gay people and still very, and still am and I just learned and when I was asked if I'd come and fight because of the role I played Debbie apparently was a powerful character and I always said yes and I still do Debbie had an interesting story arc toward the end of the series when her brother dies he dies after a fight and they never reconcile and she has to deal with that i mean i it, it caught my eye as being very very interesting thing for them to do where you, your character had to deal with her, the closest person in her life dying after a fight where he curses her out yes and she says something horrible to him too i can't say on your show Ron Cowan and Dan Lippman created that show. They would not let me cry when he died. He said, Sharon, do anything you want, but do not cry. And I said, okay, thank you. It gave me great liberty, you know, because he said, now she cries. You know, and you go, whoa. <laughs> I said, okay, I know what to do. And for, God, a couple of months, three months or so, they never would let me they wrote where I talk about it. I threw a party for him, a Christmas party he'd always wanted. And obviously, it was, you know, there's stuff underneath. I mean, I don't just do one level. But they finally wrote a scene in the kitchen with my homophobic homicide cop where they wrote the scene. They said, now, now you can finally let it out. Say your guilt. Say just... And they wrote it all. But what was hard was... Not hard. It was, it was brilliant. They just said, no, Sharon. No, this is not an ordinary show. And I said, actually, you're right. When you first hear that someone dies, you don't instantly cry. If you have guilt like she did, those words she said to him. And when they came to tell her in the diner that he was gone, uh, just before they tell her, they said, um, I think it was her son, said, Mom, uh, Uncle Vic, yeah? So what does he want? Wants his pots and pans back? I mean, it's just, you know, tell him to go buy his own that cheap. I mean, you know, he did right. terrible stuff that she'd say. No, it was about two weeks later something happened. And they, they finally started letting it set, set in where I'd, I'd drop a tray 
and things started when you deny grief. They were very smart in how they dealt with that. And since then, you've worked on uh, several shows and been a regular on both Nip Tuck and Burn Notice. Nip Tuck, I, I was a guest on. Oh, you were a guest on. I, was, I did five episodes for them, right? But Burn Notice, you're... Burn you're, Notice is mine, yeah. Have they started filming the next season? Well, season four, we will start shooting at the end of February. Cable's weird. We do 16 episodes, and they show eight, and then they wait several months and show the second half of that season, you know, a few months later. So, this is this January? Hi, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this month, this month they're going to show the second half, and Tyne Daly is opening the show with me. She's going to be in the opening episode. Well, it seems seems like old home week because Stephen Mack from Cagney and Lacey is with Stephen you at, is uh, on a round-heeled woman. He came up here to do this as a favor to me. When you're working with somebody that you know pretty well, is it all that different, say, than working with someone you don't know at all, just in terms of the relationship on stage? The most intimate scenes I have are with Stephen Mock's characters. Uh, there's one other scene I have that's not Stephen's that's intimate. Um, but Stephen and I have done so many love scenes throughout our career. He was my lover on Cagney and Lacey. I did The Immigrants, a miniseries with him. But we've never been able to be as blatant as we are here <laughs> <laughs> on stage it is like old home week it's it's just having a dear friend who i'm comfortable with some of the stuff is it's sex <laughs> and and uh but with steven he's such a gentleman you know and and, and very respectful and he's key choreographs are our sex scenes well one question people people often have is doing a sex scene on stage or on film or on television and going into those kind of intimate places when you are partnered, when you have your own life apart from the person, how easy or hard is it to do that to maintain your focus? That's a wonderful question. And I, I'm embarrassed to tell you that it was very easy. <laughs> and my husband was sitting there watching. He was in the yeah. back of the theater watching the rehearsals. But he hired Stephen for Cagney and Lacey. It was very, very focused because it's serious. I did not have a hard time with it at all. I trusted myself in Stephen's hands, literally. It was quite blatant. Um, and now they've cutting back a little. <laughs> so only those who were there that first preview got to see that. It's a wonderful question because normally we would say you were uncomfortable. I wasn't. Uh, Chris Smith is very respectful, a very sensitive man. And, and Stephen and I have done this before. Never, as I say, like we were doing it on stage. But I, I was in the hands of very good men. Jane Jusco was new at this. So I was playing Jane. And however, whatever he wanted me to do, I would do. What was your first theatrical film? My very first? Yeah. Airport 75. <laughs> I was a contract player. And all the contract players were put into Airport 75 as stewards or stewardesses. Oh. We were not given a speaking part. We were being paid for anyway. You know, we were under contract. They paid us whether we worked or not. Was that the one with Gloria Swanson? It was. <laughs> it was. Absolutely. That's the one. Did you get a chance to meet her? I did. I, I didn't get a speaking part. No, no contract players right. were allowed to speak, but I was in first class. <laughs> I was the first class stewardess. Oh, I, I spoke to her. She was a friend of my grandfather's. Oh, that's right. She would have been because she was part of that right, Cecil that B. era. Enough. And I went and told her that I was Neil McCarthy's granddaughter, and she was very dramatic. And said, oh, my darling Neil, please, you must tell him I love him. Well, I didn't have the nerve to tell him he died. She was so dramatic, you know, that I just thought it would upset her too much so anyway 
Parent glass, after Round Heel Woman closes in San Francisco, then you go on to the next season of Burn Notice. I do. And after that, do you have anything in, in, in the works? Well, I'm hoping what happens in San Francisco for this play will determine the fate of it. And Brian Eastman is flying in from London to see how it goes. He believes in it. If it goes well here, he will then attempt to take it on to take it other cities and hopefully then on to the West End, which is my dream. I'm keeping hiatus open next next season, um, hoping that I'm still doing Round Hill Woman. You've been listening to an interview with Sharon Gless, who's in San Francisco doing Round Heeled Woman, a play by Jane Prouse based on the memoir by Jane Juska through February 7th at Z Space at Theater Autoth in San Francisco. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com. Open Book is produced by Richard Walensky in the studios of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. And for ticket information on a round-heeled woman, go to zspace.org. That's zspace.org. And an extended version of this program can be found at bookwaves.com. Next Thursday on Bookwaves, on cover to cover, Richard Walensky interviews Mary Carr, author of the acclaimed memoir, Lit. My two sisters and brothers. We are Roots Communications on the Great Turtle Island. KPFA or KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno.